Welcome to The Heart Podcast, a Christian podcast featuring sermons from The Heart Church and impromptu episodes covering a wide variety of topics. We hope you enjoy. Well, good morning, everybody. I am uh, Will Walser. I'm super excited to be here, super excited to preach. This is a topic that's been on my heart for some time, and I've been studying it out for several months now. Uh, telling my, my son this morning, it's just amazing with technology, even though we've had technology for so long, I've got my sermon on my phone. It's crazy. And Omar, can we get the uh, PowerPoint up on the screen there? Okay, awesome. So uh, I... I will say this every time I get up here. I love this church. I feel so encouraged being here. This is like heaven on earth. It really, truly is. Our church has been around since 1994. And the scripture that could probably best aptly describe us in the first 10 years would be zeal without knowledge. And if you listen to any tapes of sermons back like in the late 90s, you would think we were a bunch of animals, all right? And so uh, there was so much encouragement for the preacher coming out of the pews. And we've definitely settled down, which in some ways is a good thing. But this morning, I'm going to give my top five encouragements for the preacher. And I'm going to give everybody permission to at least one time shout out one of these phrases during the sermon. And I give permission that if you shout it out, that no one is allowed to give you the stink eye. All right? So here's the top five. And believe me, we used to use these and many, many more. The first one is preach it. Or any variation thereof, preach, preach, brother. All right, so please, if you feel like saying that or scream that out, be my guest. The second one, amen. Amen. If something hits you in the heart, amen. The third one is, that's right. That's right. The fourth one, when I say this, Ryan Tucker's ears are going to be tingling. Mercy. All right. And then my personal favorite of all time, come on, man, come on, man. So preach it, amen, that's right, mercy, come on, man. Feel free at any time during the sermon to just scream that out if something hits your heart, and I will be very encouraged, amen? Okay, so this topic of mercy. Um, this is something that, being a Christian for like 30 years now, and kind of like Tim, I was a heathen, I was an atheist, agnostic, I was a heathen, I've been a, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and this is just simply a topic that I don't ever remember us really studying in a deep way. And this is something that I feel like the past two, two and a half years, all the stuff that's gone on, this is a topic that we need now more than ever. And there, you know, there's several definitions of mercy, and the one that, that I found that I like the best is the compassionate treatment of those in distress. 
And it, people in distress aren't just homeless people who are begging for food. I think we'd all be hard-pressed to say there haven't been multiple times in the past two and a half years where we haven't felt some kind of distress, discouragement, anxiety, conflict. And so we are all in distress spiritually. We are all in need of receiving mercy. We're all in need of providing mercy. And so I, I'm really excited to preach this sermon because I've just learned so much and I've been convicted in my own life how I'm falling short and I really want to share this with the congregation and I'm going to be saying lots of things and I want you to take one or two things and then just apply it right to your own heart and walk away with it. Omar, can we go to the next slide, please? So Micah chapter 6, Micah um, was written around seven, between 725 and 750 B.C. Micah wrote it. God wrote it through Micah because at that time, um, the Israelites, there was a lot of sin that was going on. There was uh, the rich, the landowners, were not treating the poor, their workers, fairly. There was oppression. And so that is one of the reasons that Micah wrote this book. And this is... Micah is an amazing book, tons of prophetic scriptures. I really encourage you to go back and study it. But this is the most famous, well-known scripture from the book of Micah. In chapter 6 and verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In today's vernacular, what he's saying is, what he's saying is, shall I give money to the church? Is that what you want, God? Contribution. Shall I serve in the kids' ministry? Is that what you want? Shall I come to church twice a week? Is that what you desire? Shall I give to the poor? Is that what you desire? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And I want to focus on mercy. And notice, he doesn't say to act justly, to act merciful. He says to love mercy. And the amazing thing, the amazing thing about being a Christian, and, and I feel this coming from 20 years of being a heathen and having zero belief. When the Bible got opened up to me, I'm not even exaggerating. I'm like, I know somehow Jesus, God, the Bible, like I was literally clueless. The amazing thing about the Bible, and this is actually a whole other sermon in and of itself, is that we've got 60, 70, 80, 90 years on this earth, whatever we have, we don't need to discover the roadmap. We've been given the roadmap. We just simply need to read it and transform our thoughts and our actions based upon what this says, and that's so encouraging because we don't need to discover. 
What's the purpose of life? How should I live? How should I act? No, it's all right here. It's just maturing as a Christian means reading things on our own and going, oh, I need to change that in my life and my heart. And this is a command to love mercy. This is something that God is calling us not just to act merciful, but to love mercy. Omar, can you go to the next slide, please? Actually, go, go back. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, um, so in, quick introduction. We're going to be doing um, a couple things here. One thing is we're going to look at Jesus. Every sermon we should look at Jesus because the church, everything centers around Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus, what he has to say about being merciful, and then we're going to look at a couple of instances in his life where he exhibited mercy. Then what we're going to do is we're going to look at a figure in the Old Testament, Boaz, that I think is someone who exhibited great amounts of mercy. And we're going to look at four or five or six practical things that he did, and we're going to try to apply it to our own lives. Amen? Okay, let's go to the next slide. Okay. Matthew chapter 10. I'm sorry, Matthew 9. Matthew 9 and verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, Matthew was a tax collector. He would become one of Jesus' apostles. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the right, not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus quotes from Hosea 6 in verse 6, uh, which is a very, another very well-known scripture in the Old Testament. It's basically a parallel scripture to the one we read in Micah. We're saying, look, I mean, obviously God desires sacrifice, but most importantly, I desire mercy. And Jesus quotes this, he specifically quotes this scripture in a response to the Pharisees' self-righteousness and religious judgment. Now, the Pharisees were the ruling religious elite, and they had basically, their whole, their whole life was encompassed around following the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the hundreds of other religious commandments in the Old Testament, and then the hundreds upon hundreds of commandments that they had placed over the years on top of those. And they, they, their thought was to be close to God, to be righteous, it's a matter of sacrifice. It's a matter of doing all these right things. And Jesus calls them on that. And as you, most of you probably know, Jesus reserved his harshest judgment for the Pharisees. And the amazing thing, when you think about it, we look at the Pharisees now, 2,000 years later, and we go, man, those guys were messed up. They had it all wrong. They were focused on all these laws, but not on people. And it's obvious to us now, but 2,000 years ago, they were fully convinced that they were righteous, that they were doing the right thing, and they were calling other people 
to do the right thing. Even though they didn't have the best motives, they were fully convinced in their heart. And ultimately, that's why they killed Jesus. So it's easy for us to look back at them. But the lesson for us to learn is we can be like the Pharisees. We can have self-righteousness and religious judgment on each other. We can do that. We fall into that. When we take our eye off our relationship with God, which when we're close to God and his love flows through us to helping other people, we take our eye off God, we can get very critical of one another. I don't like the songs that are being sung up here. I like the old songs. I like the new songs. I don't like meeting at 11.45 on a Sunday. I want to meet at 10 so I can get out of church by 11.30 and do my thing. <laughs> Me too wasn't one of the phrases I said you could say. I asked an elder to get back to me, and it took him a week and a half. I was offended when the minister got up here and said, I know he was preaching right at me. We've all felt these things. Christian, for 30 years, I've had to pull myself back and recenter myself so many times, and I know you have too. And when we take our eye off God, we can become like the Pharisees. And that scripture is not just written to the Pharisees. That's written to us. Yeah. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Amen. Matthew 12 and verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. See, they're, they're just strictly looking at the law. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Lord, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And then he goes on to heal, to heal the guy with a shriveled hand. In 1 Corinthians 13, the Bible describes itself as perfection. There is not one scripture in the Bible that is there by accident. It is not a coincidence that two times in three chapters, Jesus specifically refers back to Hosea 6.6. That is not by accident. Nothing in the Bible is by accident. And we need to take this to heart. Jesus says to the religious, the self-righteous, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's something we need to take to heart. Okay, let's look over. Next, next slide, please. Let's flip back to Matthew chapter 4. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at three instances where Jesus showed mercy. And as I was originally studying this out, you know, I was, I, I was studying through Micah. I'm like, man, that is so convicting. That's an amazing scripture. And I thought, let me look at Jesus. There's got to be a few instances where Jesus exhibited mercy. And I was like, okay, on the cross, 
That's for sure off the top of my head. There's, for some odd reason, I thought the Syrophoenician woman, he exhibited mercy. I thought, you know, the, the adulterous woman, he exhibited mercy. But let me just go back to the Gospels and read through and see what I can find. And what I found is that literally every chapter is Jesus exhibiting mercy. Jesus' entire life was an exhibition of mercy. And we're just going to read for time's sake, we're going to read three instances. Matthew 4 and verse 24. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Jesus taking care of people's illnesses and physical needs is a way in which Jesus exhibited mercy over and over and over again. Look over in Matthew. Let's go back to Matthew 9. Matthew 9 in 20 to 22. Just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter. He said, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. So clearly, Jesus, by healing her, is exhibiting mercy. But what I love about this scripture is the woman didn't ask him and tell him she's suffering. As soon as she touched his cloak, he felt power go out from him. He turned, he knew exactly what was going on. And just the words that he used, take heart, daughter. That is, those are words of incredible compassion. And he looked at her. He loved her. He immediately understood the suffering she was going through, her faith. And he he gave her a piece of himself. His, His power, his healing power went out to her. But just the words that he used exhibit such compassion and such mercy. And compassion and mercy are, I mean, mercy is the, it's the action of compassion that we feel. We act upon our compassion, mercy comes out of it. And there's so many times in the New Testament where Jesus will touch a leper. He'll touch someone that no one else even wants to go near. And just that very action in and of itself is incredible mercy that's being exhibited. Matthew said, look on down to verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and asked him, do you, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched There he is. He touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, it will be done to you. And their sight was restored. And then he goes on. This is amazing because two people in distress are specifically saying, son of David, have mercy on us. So we know the Bible considers these acts of healing to be mercy. And it's amazing because this whole term, the son of David, like that's that's a whole nother sermon. And Jesus, David was 
probably the most well-known and well-respected figure, or one of them in the Old Testament that the Jews looked up to, and they knew a king was coming, they knew a kingdom was coming, and they knew that this king, he was going to be called the son of David. I keep forgetting these are on also. But they say, son of David, have mercy on us, heal us, take care of our distress. And of course he does that. So we know that these acts of healing are considered mercy. Jesus' life, if you read through, especially Matt, I, found, I went through all the Gospels, but especially Matthew, for whatever reason, it's just one act of mercy after another. Okay, let's go to the next one, please. Okay, so I'm also studying, I've been studying the book of Ruth, and this has become one of my favorite books in the Bible. And I know the sisters studied it, I think last year or two years ago. Um, this is such an amazing book, such an amazing book. And really what I want to do, I want to look at Boaz, and I want to look at how he exhibited mercy time after time. And there's so many great practicals that we're going to take away for ourselves. But a little bit about the book of Ruth. So about 2000 BC, give or take, is when God sends Moses to uh, Egypt. He brings the Israelites through the Red Sea wanders around the desert for 40 years. He wanted to bring him into the promised land of Canaan, the land flowing of milk and honey, immediately, but because their hearts were very hard, they had to wander around the desert for 40 years. Then around, you know, 960 B.C., give or take, they go across the Jordan River, and they go in, and over the series of uh, military campaigns, they conquer the land of Canaan, and now it's, now it's theirs. The first city that they conquered of note was the fortified city of Jericho. File that away because that's going to come back in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth takes place probably 60 or 70 years, maybe one or two generations after they cross the Jordan River. All right, that's the time period in which it takes place. Now, what's happening is there's a famine in Israel. So there's an upstanding righteous man and woman Elimelech and Naomi, and they have two sons, Malon and Kilion, and they go to Moab, which was a neighboring country, not a part of Israel, because of the famine. So they get there, and the two daughters, um, I'm sorry, the two sons, Malon and Kilion, they marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then after a few years, like 10 years or 15 years, something like that, Elimelech, he, Elimelech may have actually died before they get married. I'm not sure. But so the father dies and the two sons die. And now it's Naomi with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And she says, my daughters, I'm going back to my people. You stay here with your people. There's nothing for you where I'm going. And one of them says, fine, and leaves. And the other one, Ruth, says, I'm going to stick with you through thick and thin your people will be my people. I'm going with you back to your people to worship your God. And so she comes back, and the book of Ruth is a story about how Ruth and Boaz, how they fall in love and how they get married, and that is actually critical to the lineage of Jesus, the messianic lineage, believe it or not. And I believe that's part of the reason why this book is in the Bible. Um, it's a book, amazing book about faith, loyalty, trust in God, perseverance. But the amazing thing that I realized, even in the last week as I was going through this again and again and again, is that this is a story about us. Boaz 
is a type of Christ. Boaz, he's the kinsman redeemer. He's an upright man, a righteous man. He saves this person in distress. Ruth, Ruth is us. Ruth is the church in distress, leaving their people to go worship God, right? Especially though most of us probably didn't grow up Israelite, right? We're all heathens, right? Gentiles, if you will, right? In the New Testament, on multiple occasions, it compares the church to the bride of Christ. And so if you look at Boaz is a type of Christ, Ruth is the in distress, he saves her, he marries her. When we're looking at how Boaz exhibited mercy towards Ruth and how the, the practicals we can take away, keep in mind, those are also foreshadowings of how Christ has mercy on the church and how Christ has mercy on us. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Let's go to the next uh, slide, please. Okay, let's read in Ruth. Let's read in verse 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I have found favor. I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. The first example of, of Boaz showing mercy that we can take away is he brought his relationship with God into his relationships. And back then, he was the boss. He had all the power. Those were his workers. He did not have to have a relationship with them. He did not have to treat them kindly. But he chose, and that was what the book of Micah was all about. But he chose to do that. The first thing he says, the Lord bless you. And that's the takeaway that, that's the practical that we can bring in our own lives, is we can bring our relationship with God into our relationships with each other and to the world. We can share scriptures to encourage one another. We can share scriptures with people we're trying to help become Christians. We can encourage people about how they're doing in their relationship with God. We can spur them on with scripture. But we can bring God, our relationship with God, into our relationship with others. That's the first takeaway. Let's keep reading. In verse 6, the foreman replied, well, Boaz, I'm sorry, verse 5, Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather from the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went to the field and has worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from water, the water jars the men have filled. The second takeaway is, just like Jesus, compassionate words. Take heart, daughter. Those are the same words that Jesus used, essentially. 
And the takeaway for us is that's how we can treat one another with compassion. I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm so encouraged by you. Even I'm so proud of my niece, Brianna, wherever she is. There she is. I heard she just crushed it at the woman's midweek. And I just sent her a text. Brianna, I'm so proud of you. Right? But we can, we can encourage one another with these loving words. Touching one another. Hugs. Just a squeeze on the arm. A squeeze behind the nape of the neck. These are very compassionate actions and words that we can be doing to encourage one another. The next thing is that Boaz was protective of Ruth. He said, do this, stay over here, don't go there. I've talked to the men, don't do this, right? And the example that I can think, the real world example is five or six years ago in, in Lydia, my da our daughter was probably 12 or 13, maybe 14 at the time, it was Halloween. She's like, dad, I wanna go out with my friends trick or treating without you. And inside, I'm like over my dead body, right? <laughs> Outside, I was like, oh, sure. So what I did is I said, okay, get your friends. You're all dressed up. I'm going to take you to the Joneses' neighborhood because it's like the safest neighborhood in all of Windsor. <laughs> I'm going to drop you off right here, and I'm going to pick you up on that street over there one hour from now. Dropped them off. Got my car. I went to the side street and parked. Unbeknownst to them, I followed them about 200 yards behind, <laughs> all right? And I was like, if you think, I'm going to let four beautiful 13-year-old girls who are about as naive as you could possibly be walk along at night and go to people's houses by themselves, you are out of your mind. And I organized their protection. It, and without getting into too much detail, I was legally prepared to defend them by any and all means necessary <laughs> from anyone or anything that might wish to do them harm. They had no idea that Papa Bear was 200 years behind. 200 years, 200 yards behind. All they know is when they got to that other street, I was there waiting, all right? And we would all do this for our children. I would die for my wife and children, and all of you would do the same thing. We would do anything to protect and orchestrate the protection for our kids. If we feel about that, with, about our kids and our, sp our spouse, then that would dictate that we would never do something to tear them down. We would, at least intentionally, of course we sin and we do, and we have to make up and apologize, right? But we would never, in our right mind, do something to tear them down, to intentionally discourage them, to intentionally harm them. We would never do that. And we need to take this attitude in the way we treat one another, in the way we treat the full-time staff, in the way we treat our elders, in the way we treat each other, where we treat our youngest disciples in the church, our oldest disciples in the church. We need to have an attitude that we are going to be protective of each other, maybe even behind the scenes. That's what, that's, how, that's what Boaz did. That's what the type of Christ was doing right here. It's something that is a part of being merciful. The next thing, he provided for her physical needs. Um, providing for each other's physical needs is an act of mercy. 
right? whether it's making a meal for somebody, whether it's babysitting somebody's kids, right? Whether it's um, just going over to, maybe someone needs help just cleaning their garage, right? or taking someone clothes, but meeting each other's physical needs is a part of being merciful. Look down in verse, well, verse 10. At this, she bowed to the ground with her, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz had it. He was, he was grateful. He knew what she had done for her mother-in-law. And he was grateful. Along with mercy, I feel like gratitude, and that could be a whole other sermon, but gra- those are like two of the most underrated virtues that there are. When we're grateful, it spurs us on to be merciful. Boaz was a man who was grateful. But there's something deeper here that also is a reason that he was grateful. Can anybody tell me, besides Tim, and Tim may not even know this, who was Boaz's mother? Tim, do you know? Rahab the prostitute. 70 years before, they went through over the Jordan, they conquered Jericho because Rahab had given them information. They destroyed everything except for Rahab. And if you go back and look in the book of Judges, it specifically says she and her whole family, she wasn't married at the time, her parents, her siblings, they all went to a foreign land, Israel, to live with foreigners, to live with God's people. That was his mother. So Boaz understood what it meant for a foreigner to leave their homeland and go live to be with God's people. Isn't that cool? Isn't that amazing? And that's one of the things that he's going, oh my God, it just triggered in him. It triggered in him. This is an amazing woman, and I've got to take care of her. Gratitude is a part of mercy. And then let's just really quickly read in verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some leftover. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Without going into too much detail, he orchestrated her acceptance and her success. And this is what your family group leaders are doing on a weekly basis. And this is what we're called to do, is orchestrate each other's success. And I want to hold up, I want to hold up two couples that are in our zone. And it's the Waterhouses and the Paras. And these couples, they're just old school disciples. They have not had the easiest go of it, right? Like all of us, they have, in some cases, I'm I'm speaking very generally, in some cases, health issues, severe health issues, in some cases, addiction issues, I'm not meaning both couples, but in some cases, like all of us, they've needed help on their marriage, right? 
uh, financial issues in some cases, and yet they continue to serve and serve and be close to God, and the outgrowth of that is with joy, they're serving their family groups, they're setting up discipling times, they're setting up events, they're hosting events, they're making sure people in their family groups are, are spiritually fed. And uh, I just think I'm so encouraged and inspired by these couples. And I think they're great examples. But this is what it means to orchestrate each other's success. It's not just about us. It's about helping each other out. Amen? Okay, go to the next slide. I'm going to make this quick because I know I'm, I'm going long here. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to read this. I'm not going to get into this. There's a lot of great stuff here. Um, I don't want to be the frustrated preacher that goes on for an hour and a half, but Boaz was a gentleman. He was kind. He was very protective. He was incredibly self-controlled, and he was incredibly humble, all of which contribute to mercy. And then let me just read real quickly Ruth 4 in verse 11, and this is right before they get married. Then the elders and those at the gate said, we are witnesses May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And so, so Rahab was the mother. She married some guy, Salmon. They had Boaz, who married Ruth, who was a foreigner. They gave birth to a son, Obed, who was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, who eventually, in whose line, came Jesus. And here's God working. And basically, this is, you know, the, here's the elders going, may your line be famous. And boy, didn't that come true, right? All right, next slide, please. Okay, conclusion. The conclusion, Jesus led a life full of mercy. Boaz, he practically showed us many examples of living out mercy. Let's consider those. Let's take one or two things that I said and, and, and just how can I incorporate that in my life in a practical way? How can I not just be merciful, how can I love mercy? What can we do to show more mercy? The world, the church, our spouses, children, our family groups, our church staff, our elders, they're all, we are all in desperate need of mercy. And then the last thing I want to say, the last, because I've thought so much about this, is I think it's so important because in, our, in the church, in our families, we do things all the time to offend each other, don't we? By accident, right? Sometimes on purpose. But I think it's so important that we, we need to resolve these situations. But our first, our first inclination should be that we're going to give each other the benefit of the doubt. We're going to assume the other person has good motives. Right? I mean, I, what did I do? I did something to Carol. What did I do? I just I offended you greatly. At the... At the no, it was at the, uh, it was in Florida on our vacation at the, uh, the dollar store there. Yes, remember? And it was at Goodwill. And so Lydia, the four of us were in Goodwill, 
And so we were all there, Peyton and I, after about a half hour, we had all we could take. We went outside. And after about three more hours, no, I'm just kidding. After what seemed like three more hours, probably was 10 more minutes, I basically walked in, and Carol's looking at some stuff, having a good old time, and dresses or whatever. And I walk up, and I just turn around and say, all right, let's get out of here. We're done. Let's go. And there was like two women right there, and, and they were looking at me like, who? And then I walked over to Lydia, and I, all right, time to leave. And I thought nothing of it. And so I went back out to the car, and I'm with Peyton, and Carol texted me, that was really rude. And, and you really embarrassed me. And I'm like, oh, my God, what did I just do? And I go, yep, I am so sorry. But, the, but she gave me the benefit of the doubt. She didn't come at me. She gave me the benefit of the doubt and gave me a chance to repent and apologize. And as soon as she sent the text, I'm like, whoo, yep. I was, that was super rude. That was horrible. I'm so sorry. But if she came at me, how much harder would it have been for me to repent and be humble, right? So, so please, when we are, because we're family, we're all up at each other's grill all the time, let's give each other the benefit of the doubt. And let's exhibit mercy. Thank you, church. Let's have a great day today. For listening to the Heart Podcast. To learn more about the Heart, visit us online at hartfordchurch.org.